We praise you, Father, and thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for us. And we thank you, Jesus, for going through with that. That is absolutely amazing. And we seek you and ask for you to teach us more about this, that it would grip our hearts with joy and thanksgiving and freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, page 818 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. And we're at this section, this second part of Hebrews chapter 2. There's three sections that discuss this question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? We looked at it last week. We saw the first and I believe most important reason was that that was necessary to unite us to God, to bring us back into that relationship with God that he originally intended for us to have. Today we're going to see that he died on the cross to defeat Satan. Next week, we'll see the last part as well. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? But here we want to look at this, uh, that Jesus died on the cross to defeat Satan. How many of you saw the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ? You know, it's a pretty gory movie at times, right? And it's all in Latin and stuff, you know, so it's kind of funny. But, but really gripping, though, isn't it? Okay? And do you remember that part where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, pouring out his heart to God, and then he, and there's snakes around there, and he gets up and stomps the snake's head? You remember that? Okay, that actually probably didn't happen. You know, it's not in the Bible. But, but it's pretty cool because it's what it's revealing is way back, a prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that Messiah will crush Satan's head. Okay, that that was predicted. And here we see that the crucifixion does just that. It defeats Satan. So why did, what did Jesus accomplish those six hours that one Friday? He defeated the devil. Throughout his life, he battled Satan at the temptation, uh, casting out demons at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then finally at the cross. Look at what our passage, Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews. Okay. Since the children have, by the way, my wife has been gone for an entire day now. I still have a week and a half. Okay. So you just got to bear with me here, all right? Okay. So I'll try to get focused. She's in Guatemala. All right. Hebrews. I almost said Ephesians again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. By his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. At the cross, where Satan thought he had won, right? Can you picture it? You know, Satan kills Messiah on the cross. You're thinking, yeah, he's, he's thinking he won, right? At the cross where Satan thought he had won, he was defeated. Christ's death and resurrection was the knockout punch that defeated the devil and set us free. That's what we see in our passage. So it's worth digging into. 
First, we see that Jesus had to be both God and man. Our passage reflects on how Jesus, who is God, second person of the Trinity, had to take on humanity, had to become a human being. Look at what it says. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, physical beings, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. So we see here, he shared in our humanity. He became a human being. Uh, Without ceasing being God, he took on a second nature, that of humanity became a human being. In David Allen's commentary, he discusses this. He says that Jesus, too, shared in their humanity is an emphatic statement of the doctrine of the incarnation, so explicitly stated that no possible place is left for the unreal phantom Christ of the docetic heresy. Now you're thinking, what's he talking about? Actually, in the latter part of the first century and the second century, the first heresy of the church was not a denial of his deity. Everyone believed Jesus was God. It was a denial of his humanity. They said it just appeared like he became a human and didn't really become a human because they thought flesh was evil, so Jesus couldn't do that. But here we see he literally, truly became a human being. The aorist metaskin, that's the word for shared, indicates the time when Jesus took on human nature, which would have been at his virgin conception, culminating in his birth in Bethlehem. So the virgin birth, that is when he became a human being. And Christ's humanity, this is kind of interesting when you study um, like the dead guys that wrote hundreds of years ago and stuff, okay? Some of they, they come up with illustrations and some of them are pretty cool, okay? Like one of the big illustrations way back in ancient times, they would say, they would speak of this idea that Jesus was God and became a human being. That he became a human being, his humanity was the, the bait on the hook, and the hook was his deity that got Satan, okay? If you're a fisherman, it kind of helps, okay? But, but you, okay, you get, you get that. But here we see that he had to be both God and man. First of all, why did he have to become a human being? I got to go through this fairly briefly, but first of all, so that he could relate to us and that we could relate to him. We're going to see this as we go through the book of Hebrews, that this is a very important part in Hebrews where it describes how we can relate to him because he suffered just like we suffered, and he was tempted just like we we were tempted, and so he could relate to us. He knows exactly how we feel, so we see that this is why he became a human being, but centrally, and this is what we see in our passage Only a man could die. Only a human being could die. Notice what it says. Uh, He shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. God can't die, right? Okay, God cannot die, so God became a human being, took on that second nature, that of humanity, and therefore was able to die and did die in our place. But only a human being could die. So he had to be human. And he had to be our goel. Now, that's an interesting term. Have you ever read the book of Ruth? Okay. Book of Ruth is a fascinating book. It's all about this concept of goel. In the Old Testament, God put it on the people. They were supposed to be a people that took care of each other. Okay. By the way, it's still true. 
<laughs> We're supposed to take care of each other. But in such a way that the nearest of kin, if someone got themselves into trouble, like for instance, they were in debt, so they sold themselves into slavery, the nearest of kin was responsible, if they could, to help get them out of that slavery, okay? So that was their responsibility. Well, Jesus is our goel. We're going to see that we, before we become Christians, are slaves to both Satan and sin. And so we can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We need to be ransomed, redeemed out of slavery. Uh, this idea of ransom, Mark 10, 45, specifically says that he was a ransom for us. Now, when we think of ransom, we're, we usually think of, you know, somebody kidnapped somebody, right? Well, back then, mostly this word was used to set someone from slavery. A ransom was the price paid to get someone out of slavery so that they could be free, okay? Jesus, because we're all slaves to sin and Satan, he paid the price to set us free from that slavery. He was a ransom for us. He was our goel, but he had to become our brother. Remember, we saw that a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is our brother because he took on humanity, and therefore, as our brother, closest, nearest kin, he paid the price that was necessary to set us free from sin, okay? Um, so he could relate to, we could relate to, he could relate to us, we could relate to him. Um, uh, only a man could die, so he could be our goel. And for representative obedience, uh, remember Adam, who represented us poorly, right? He blew it. He wrecked the world because of his sin and passed on that sinful nature, which has continued to wreck the world. Okay, well, Jesus comes as the second Adam. He represented us perfectly, but he had to be human to do that. Adam was human. He has to be human in order to represent us perfectly as he did. And then finally, you probably can't see it. (laughs) Sorry. For our example, Uh, Jesus became a human being and literally lived this life in total dependence on the Holy Spirit to show us how to live a life totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting when you follow the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to, to accomplish anything. And you think, well, why would he need the Holy Spirit? Jesus is God. He could just do anything he wants to, right? Right. But he lived this life as a human being to show us how we can live a life dependent on the Holy Spirit and gain victory over Satan. And so we see here for our example as well. And then, by the way, that's why, you know, you've heard of the WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? That is an excellent question to ask in everything you're thinking about doing. You know, and if you can't see Jesus doing it, then don't do it right? Okay. He is our example on how to live this life. So that's why he had to become a human, but he also had to be God. Okay. And and it's very critical that we see only the God man, Jesus Christ, could have brought this about our forgiveness of sins. He had to be God, first of all, because sin's penalty deserves an infinite punishment. You see, now we're finite, and we sin, but our sin is so bad that it deserves an infinite punishment because it's against the infinitely glorious God who is perfect and absolutely wonderful and incredible and great and all that, right? Okay, so only 
an infinite punishment will work. And that's why if someone chooses to pay their own penalty, you go to hell forever, okay? Whereas Jesus, being God, was able to pay an infinite punishment because he's infinitely glorious as God. So he had to be man, but he also had to be God. He had to be God because only God could defeat Satan. Human beings can't defeat. Listen, he's way above our league, okay? You try to fight him on your own, forget about it. Only God could defeat him. But by the way, if you're a Christian, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So you don't have to fear anything because you got your big brother right by your side, Jesus, okay? But only God could defeat Satan. And then third, only God could purchase us because we were made for him. Now, this is an interesting point here, okay? You see, if Jesus wasn't God and he did purchase us through his blood, the Bible says that he bought us through, by his blood, okay? So he purchased us. If he wasn't God, if he purchased us, then we're his, not God's, right? Okay, but we were made for God. So it had to be God himself who purchased us. And so we see only God could purchase us because we were made for him. And by the way, this is the only way the crucifixion could be a loving thing to do. You know, when we say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, if Jesus isn't God, that is not love. That's mean. Making your son do the dirty work that you don't want to do? That's, that's child abuse is what that is. But if Jesus is God, then it's God himself taking on the penalty. And that is love, okay? So only God could purchase us because we were made for him. And only God could most fully reveal God to us in order to draw us back to God. We needed God himself to show up, show us how wonderful he is by dying on the cross for us when we're enamored by his wonderful greatness because he really is incredible, okay? Don't you think so? Jesus is so wonderful because he is God. He showed up. You know, we saw that in in Hebrews chapter one where it says he's the exact representation of God because he is God. And so that's enough to draw us to himself. So this is why he had to be God. So he had to be both human and divine as we see. Next, we see in our passage that Jesus' death rendered Satan powerless. Look what it says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus' death rendered Satan powerless. This is what some theologians call the Christus Victor theory of the atonement. Why did Jesus die? He died to uh, defeat Satan and gain victory. Uh, it's also called the ransom theory and, and so forth. But we see here that he defeats Satan by rendering him powerless. Some other passages of Scripture we, we want to look at to, to bring this out. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Galatians, book of Galatians, all about salvation, starts out in verse 4 with this concept, speaking of Jesus Christ. 
he says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Now notice here that he died, gave himself for our sins to rescue us. It's a rescue mission. This is what it refers to when we see that Jesus is defeating Satan. He's rescuing us from his power and from his grip on us. So it's a rescue mission from this present evil age, Galatians says. Look at Colossians 1.13. Brings out a similar idea here. Colossians 1.13. By the way, I want to read all these passages to help you see this isn't just a passing note. This is a major theme in Scripture that Jesus' death on the cross defeats Satan in our lives. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So notice here once again, it's a rescue mission from the dominion of darkness. I don't have this up there, but look at Colossians 2, verse 15. It's just the next chapter over. 2.15. We're going to probably cover verses 13 through 15 a little more extensively next week. But notice what it says here. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's a reference to the demonic realm, and that word disarmed is the same word we're seeing here in our passage. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is a defeat of Satan, a triumph over him, a disarming of the demonic forces. That's what we're seeing from all these passages. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. We see this idea again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared... Why did he appear? Was to destroy the devil's works. He wants, he came by the cross to destroy the devil's works. And so we see this idea of rendering Satan powerless. Our enemy, Satan, no longer has power over us. That's what we're seeing in our passage. When he says here that by his death he might break the power over him, the Greek word there is katargeo. Okay, same word that we saw in the Colossians 2.15 passage. Katargeo can sometimes mean abolish, but obviously it doesn't mean abolish here because Satan's still around, right? Okay, but it also means render powerless. Stop him from having power over God's people. That's the promise we see. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In other words, the lion's teeth have been pulled. That's good news, right? Okay, so Satan uh, has no longer has power over us. Now, Satan usurped power over this world. He it, some people think that God gave him the power over this world. God didn't give him any power. God is already and still is sovereignly over, in control of the entire universe. He didn't relinquish any of his power or authority, but he's allowing Satan to be a renegade for a time, okay? And so Satan has usurped power over this world. It's what we see in Genesis chapter three. 
It's what we see in 1 John 5, 19, where it says uh, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. It's, it's what that's referring to is absolutely everybody in the world, except for Christians, are under the sway. They're under the spell of Satan. They're under his control because they're slaves to Satan and to sin. And so the whole world is trapped. If you wonder, you know, sometimes we think, how can non-Christians be so sinful sometimes? You ever wonder that? I wonder why you wonder that. I mean, I wonder why they're not as bad as they could be, right? And it's because of the common grace of God. You know, we shouldn't wonder why sinners sin. They're under the power of Satan. They have a sinful nature. That's their nature. That's what's going to happen. They need to be set free. We need to have compassion for them, not be angry at them. Does that make sense? Okay, well, anyway, Satan usurped his power. We see uh, John 10.10. The thief, referring to Satan, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Apparently, he is able to kill. It's what we see in our passage here. Who holds the power of death? That is the devil. So, But obviously, only when God allows it. God is in complete control. We see that in the book of Job very clearly. God is in complete control. But Satan wants to kill people. He is really a bad dude. Okay? Okay. Albert Moeller brings this idea out. He says, Christians must take the devil seriously. Scripture testifies that Satan is our enemy. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He delights in perverting the gospel and preventing it from being preached. He is a liar, John 8.44. He is a deceiver, Ephesians 6.11. He is a destroyer, John 10.10. And he is a tempter, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. In short, the devil is maliciously and comprehensively opposed to God's being, God's character, God's purpose, God's people, and God's glory. He is bad. We do not and should not have sympathy for the devil contra uh, the Rolling Stones. Okay. Some of you understood that. So you need to repent. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Satan usurped power over this world, but Satan no longer has the power of accusation over us as believers. He cannot accuse us before God anymore because we are forgiven. We have been acquitted of all crimes because of the death of Jesus Christ. So he can't. Now, he's going to try. Right, he's going to try to get you and accuse you and make you feel horrible when you sin. Okay, but he does not have that power of accusation over us anymore. Um, we uh, let me read Moeller again in his commentary. He says Christ's penal and substitutionary atonement. We're going to talk about that next week. Okay, completely exhausts Satan's powers of accusation. Thus, while the devil may continue to prowl about, he prowls with a limp. He has been stripped of his most destructive weapons. His accusations against God's people do not stick. You can say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I still fall. But I'm trusting in Jesus who died on the cross to set me free from my sin. You cannot accuse me any longer, Satan. 
Satan no longer has the power of accusation over us. And Satan no longer has the power of temptation over us. Now, that doesn't mean he can't tempt us. He does. And temptation is still powerful, so don't get me wrong. But we don't have to yield to the temptation any longer. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is an absolutely essential passage of Scripture to help us grow in Christ. This truth that we see in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Allow it to penetrate your hearts. Memorize it. Quote it. It is way too important to ignore. Look what it says. No temptation. That means there's not a single one that doesn't fall into this category. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now notice the promise there. He says he will, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, he says God will not even allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear in his strength, right? And will also provide a way of escape so that you don't have to fall into it, okay? That is very critical for us to understand. This is true. He won't even allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, so don't believe the lie of Satan when he says you have to do this. But don't fight temptation. Flee temptation. The Bible actually says, resist the devil, but it says, but flee temptation. We resist the devil, but when the temptation comes, we look for the way of escape. God has provided a way of escape. We look for it. We take it. And that's how we gain victory here. But this is the promise because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. So Satan no longer has the power of temptation. We are not his slaves, and we no lo- we're no longer powerless to his temptations. So our enemy, Satan, no longer has power over us, but also our enemy, sin, no longer has power over us. I apologize. I know you can barely see that last point there, but look at Romans chapter 6. I don't have time to go into the whole chapter, but this brings out this incredible truth that we are no longer slaves to sin. So we're no longer slaves to Satan, and we are no longer slaves to sin. Look at Romans 6. I do want to start it out, okay, because I love this first part about baptism, which we just got to see, okay? Look at this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see, people back then, just like today, when they hear grace, they think, oh, you're just going to use grace as an excuse to sin. So Paul was accused of it as well, and he's answering that question. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. So you've got to understand, when you put your trust in Christ, you're repenting of your sin. You're dying to sin. You don't want to live like that anymore. You're seeking God to give you the strength to overcome that kind of a lifestyle. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it? any longer. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what baptism pictures. It pictures a burial. It's a death. You're saying, I am dying to the old way of life. I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm buried. And that's why, by the way, why it has to be submersion. Sprinkling does not picture burial at all. It has to be death, burial, and then rise again, just like Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day. We don't hold you down for three days. But that's the picture that's being displayed here. We are no longer slaves to sin. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Guess what word that is? Katargeo, right? Okay, we'll take your word for it. It is. Katargeo, done away with, abolished, or probably better understood as rendered powerless. Because we still have this body, don't we? We still have the flesh. We still have the temptations. But it's been rendered powerless, that katargeo, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the patterns of teaching that is now that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. By the way, we still are slaves, but it's to God who is a great and wonderful master, not Satan and sin. He says, uh, the last part of verse 19, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. So how can we overcome? Listen, sin no longer has power over us according to Romans chapter 6, 1 through 19. We got to get baptized, all right? That's the beginning of the passage. That's what he says. Go through the burial, okay? The picture that, that, that so remarkably displays what happens when we become a Christian. So get baptized. Believe that you're set free, verse 7. You got to believe it. God's word says it. Satan wants to lie to you and tell you it's not true, but it is true. You are set free free from sin if you're a true believer. So we believe it. We take him for his word. And by the way, God doesn't like us to call him a liar. He wants us to believe. Have you ever seen how that belief thing is really important to him? All the way through the Bible, okay? So believe you're set free and count yourself dead to sin. Verse 11, reckon it so, I think is the old King James. The, the idea that we count it, this is true. I'm recognizing I've been set free, and I am dead to sin. I don't have to live that life anymore. Reject all forms of legalism. Now, first 14 is kind of interesting. You're no longer a slave to sin, so don't come under the law, it says, which you were, kind of weren't even expecting that one. But legalism actually hinders our ability to live a holy life. 
And so we re- reject all forms of legalism. Love God more than your sin. Notice it's all about the heart in verse 17. Love God more than your sin and then offer your bodies to God in service. Now, if you do this, put this together, you're baptized, you believe you're set free, you count yourself dead to sin, rejecting all forms of legalism, you love God more than your sin, you offer your bodies to God in service instead of offering your bodies to sin, you're going to be so busy serving God, you won't have time to sin, okay? And you won't want to because of your love for God. And so we see, let me say that, there still is that struggle, there still is that battle, nobody gets free from the battle, but we get the victory because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, lastly, he says Jesus' death freed us from the fear of death. Back to our Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus' death freed us from the fear of death. Max Lucado, in his wonderful book, Six Hours, One Friday, paints the picture of this fear of death. Death, the bully on the block of life. He catches you in the alley. He taunts you in the playground. He badgers you on the way home. You too will die someday. You see him as he escorts the procession of hearse-led cars. He's in the waiting room as you walk out of the double doors of the intensive care unit. He's near as you stare at the pictures of the bloated bellies of the starving in Zimbabwe. And he'll be watching your expression as you slow your car past the crunched metal and the blanketed bodies on the highway. Your time is coming. He jabs. Oh, we try to prove him wrong. We jog, we diet, we pump iron, we play golf. Yeah. We try to escape it, knowing all along that we will only at best postpone it. Everyone has a number, he reminds, and every number will be called. He'll make your stomach tighten. He'll leave you wide-eyed and flat-footed. He'll fence you in with fear. He'll steal the joy of your youth and the peace of your final years. And if he achieves what he sets out to do, he'll make you so afraid of dying that you never learn to live. That is why you should never face him alone. The bully's too big for you to fight by yourself. That's why you need a big brother. Jesus unmasked death and exposed him for who he really is, a 98-pound weakling dressed up in a Charles Atlas suit. Jesus had no patience for this imposter. He couldn't sit still while death pulled the veil over life. In fact, if you ever want to know how to conduct yourself at a funeral, don't look to Jesus for an example. He interrupted each one he ever attended. (laughs) Jesus' death frees us from the fear of death. We are going to die but we do not have to fear it anymore. John 8, 31 through 38 speaks of how when we truly trust in Christ, surrendering him to Lord, embracing his teaching, it says the son sets you free. And if he who set you free, then you are free indeed. He calls this a slavery, okay? Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Slavery is a very evil thing. It's a blight on our nation, that's for sure. Tragically, it would have been great if at the 
founding of our country, when they pronounced that, those words that we hold these truths self-evident, that God has created all men equal, if we really would have lived that out, we wouldn't have this horrible mess that we still are experiencing because of the evil of slavery. But we are all slaves to sin and Satan until we're set free when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And that freedom comes from the cross of Jesus. And so I would say, fear God and nothing else. We read this passage last week, but I love this passage, so we gotta read it again. Isaiah 8, verse 13. Here we see this idea of fearing God and nothing else. Now, this is a, the kind of fear that draws us near to God, not the kind of fear that forces us away from him. But So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Proverbs. But in Isaiah 13, it says, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, I don't like the NIV translation there, the last part. CSB says, only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. That's our God. Fear God and nothing else. We see in 2 Timothy 1, 7, you know, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's the King James. NIV says God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He doesn't want us to be timid. Don't be wimps. Courage is a lost virtue and cowardice is a sin according to Revelation 21, verse 8. I think of World War II with Winston Churchill and Chamberlain. Chamberlain was a putz. He was a wimp that if he would have stayed in charge, England would have been German. But then Winston Churchill comes along and he changes everything. And he says, we will never give up. We don't care. That's all there is to it. That's how we're supposed to be. By the way, that movie that came out, it's really good if you haven't seen it yet on Winston Churchill. But anyway, that's my, my thoughts there. Okay. If Christians live out a lifestyle of fearing God and nothing else, looking death square in the eye without flinching, saying, bring it on, that kind of church will turn the world upside down. Christians who are afraid to speak the truth in love have not learned this truth, that we have been set free from the fear of death, as well as the fear of persecution or the fear of being mocked or the fear of being looked down on or any other fear. We have been set free. Now, death is our final enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 48. 54 through 58. We don't go backwards. But it ends with this, where, oh, death, is your sting? It's gone because it's been rendered powerless. Katargeo, this is the truth that we see. Death is our final enemy, uh, and so we need to be aware of that. Let me read again in Moeller. (laughs) Interesting story here. He says, yet no matter how much we try to ignore the reality of death, It is inevitable. In fact, a colleague once told me that as he was on a long flight back home, the man sitting next to him died of a heart attack. Given that the flight attendant had nowhere to put the body, they simply left the man buckled in his seat. Whether or not you are are ever forced to sit that close to death before your own end, the reality of death's inevitability remains. 
Honesty compels us to admit that if the gospel is not true, then death is a horrifying reality we should fear. Death is the most frightening thing we can ever face without the gospel. But because of the gospel, the sting has been removed. We do not have to fear death at all. Now, Satan has been defeated. That doesn't mean he isn't dangerous. It doesn't mean we won't experience serious pain in this life. We all probably will. Think of it like this. The illustration has been said that really it's like D-Day and V-Day, back to the World War II illustration. D-Day, after D-Day, if you're a history buff, for all intents and purposes, the Allies won the war. But some of the worst fighting took place after D-Day. It wasn't until Victory Day, V-Day, that the war was completely over. D-Day is the cross. For all intents and purposes, the war is over. Satan has been defeated. But there will be battles. V-Day is when Jesus returns. Until then, though, we do not have to fear. God might call us to be casualties, but we have no fear because God has already won the war. Have you joined the battle yet? Are you thinking about going AWOL? Man up or woman up. Is that a way they say that? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Human up. How's that? Okay. That's, uh, you know, we need to see this. Roll up your sleeves. Let's live fiercely for the king, no matter what, because we know he's already won and we're no longer slaves to Satan or to sin. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that sometimes we are afraid. Sometimes we shy away and we don't take those opportunities to share the truth in love and and we confess that sometimes we're wimps and we ask you to forgive us and to help us to be bold for Christ to help us believe this with all of our heart soul mind and strength that you have defeated the evil one and we can rest in you and we can trust and go ahead and just just serve you with unabandoned uh living. Help us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Show each of us that we have this victory because of Jesus Christ. I do pray for anyone here who's struggling with sin, that you'd break that off of them. You'd help them to see that today is the day because they're going to once again choose to believe these truths that are true. They're going to gain victory. Give us victory that we might bring you glory And use us for your glory until you return. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.